Hello again, you're tuned to Britain's fastest growing aviation podcast. This is UK Airshow Reviews Display Frequency. Running into the show, starting! Yes, here we are again. I'm Dan O'Hagan, and this is show number three already. It seems you're liking what you're hearing, so thank you for the feedback and the number of downloads. It's all very encouraging. Remember, this is your show. If there's anything you think we should be covering and talking about, then let us know on the UK's original and best aviation forum, airshows.co.uk, or on Twitter, where you can find and follow us at UK Airshow Review. Coming up in today's show... It's our biggest and most full podcast yet. We're focusing on Bomber Command and the real possibility of having two flying Lancasters in the UK. Display Frequency has the latest news on the progress towards returning East Kirkby's Just Jane to the skies. June sees the unveiling of a belated national memorial to the 55,000 Bomber Command crew who died during the Second World War. Today's programme looks ahead to that and looks back at the struggle it's been to ensure the Bomber Boys are remembered. The display season continues. Our focus moves on to Yeovilton. We preview their 2012 air day and look ahead to, on paper, one of the best Waddington air shows in years. With the air tattoo at Fairford just weeks away, Ben Donnell, my fellow Riyadh commentator, joined me for a drink and a discussion about, well, pretty much everything. And there's a special on-location report from Cosford as we reflect on and get the inside story on their eagerly anticipated air show. Oh, and once again, you can be a winner, thanks to Planes TV. So keep listening. Smoke off. Go. Straight ahead and run. We're getting close to exceeding our maximum all-up takeoff weight. I'm Dan O'Hagan, and you're listening to a jam-packed edition of UK Airshow Review's Display Frequency. Marshal Harris has promised Germany a tremendous, unprecedented, non-stop bombing. Prime Minister too has told them what they may expect, city by city. And this, the Lancaster, is one of the principal means by which those promises will be made good. That prospect is as clear as the bomb-aimer's view of his target over Germany. At the moment, the Lancaster is the finest heavy bomber operated by the United Nations. We know it's the best in the world, and we believe it's a weapon with a great destiny in the winning of this war. That's the Lancaster. Yes, Roy Chadwick's masterpiece, a true icon, and without question, one of the greatest bombers ever built. And they were built in huge numbers too, over 7,300 Lancasters, of which just a couple have flown in 2012. In the UK, we're lucky, of course, to have one of those airworthy Lancasters, PA-474 of the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight, a staple of the British airshow scene. But what if the UK was to get a second airworthy example? Well, that dream could become reality if our first guest is to have his way. Andrew Panton joins us from the Lincolnshire Aviation Heritage Centre at East Kirkby, where they're the proud custodians of a Mark 7 Lancaster NX611 Just Jane, currently in taxiing condition. Andrew, welcome. First, tell us about Just Jane and how she found her way to East Kirkby. Yeah, the the aircraft that we have here, Just Jane, um, was bought by Fred and Harold Panton um, in about 1982-1983. At that point, it was Gate Garden at RAS Scampton. Um, when they bought it, they left it there for about another four years uh, before, whilst they got the, the ground and areas ready here at East Kirkby. Um, we put the, the half of the hangar up and got the area ready and then brought the Lancaster here in 1988. It's from that point on, uh, 1989 onwards, the museum opened and it's built into to what we have here today. Even now, what, 70 years on, the Lancaster has this aura. Why do you think it's still such an iconic machine with not just the enthusiasts but also the public at large? Well, a lot of people say if it looks right, it is right, and that's certainly something uh, with the Lancaster and indeed with the, with the Spitfire. They look right, they sound right, and so they're, they're still capturing uh, children's imaginations year on year. Um, so it's not only what it's done historically, but it's how it looks and how it sounds now that really gets the next generation's interest in the aircraft. They then look at the history and what the aircraft did, 
the sacrifices the crews made and it's it, like a snowball effect to get more and more interested. You mentioned there the sacrifices made by the crews of Bomber Command. Later this month on June the 28th, finally the official Bomber Command Memorial is being unveiled in Green Park, London. That must be pleasing to see given the work you're doing. Well, it's long overdue as far as we're all concerned here. You think 55,500 um, aircrew uh, lost their lives during the Second World War for Bomber Command. I think that was the, the heaviest losses out of any command uh, percentage-wise. Um, and it's taken all these years for the, the country and, and the government to officially recognise their sacrifice. Um, and even then, the public have had to donate and companies have had to donate to it. And it's not been something the government have, have really got behind. Um, so it, it's not very good in, in that respect. But it's good that, that the public have felt the need to... Uh, identify with, with Bomber Command and what they did during the war. It almost borders on national disgrace that it's only now after all these years that there'll be an official memorial to Bomber Command. It is, yeah. Considering how big a part they played in the war, for them to almost be forgotten about and swept under the carpet after the wars, it's really bad, really, considering everything they did do for the country. Absolutely. It does seem strange that in a nation where the fighter boys of 1940 etched into our national psyche that their bomber equivalents have been as you say brushed under the carpet why do you think that's the case it's um the, the bomber command um part of the war really post-war got a lot of more political um importance to it a lot a lot more of a polit- political side to it after the war with the cold war and everything like that so what they did was almost the, the good bits were almost forgotten the bad bits were identified with if you think during the battle of written period and in, in the um, invasion of the barges the bam- bombing of the barges by bomber command we lost more air crew at that period than fighter command lost and also during several raids in the war on one night bomber command lost more men than fighter command lost in the entire battle of written period those kinds of facts and what bomber command did is overlooked and they look more upon uh, things like Dresden and Hamburg, which um, incurred an, an awful lot of civilian loss. Um, but they also then forget why those raids took place in the first place, with the, the bombing of U-boat pens and Dresden having all the marshalling yards, um, and how that affected and helped the Eastern Front with the Russians. So it was almost Bomber Command's memory was sacrificed in order to, to help relations with, with Europe as it was getting back on its feet. As we mentioned, the memorial is unveiled on June the 28th. Have you seen the design and what do you make of it? We've had a little bit to do with it. Um, we were over in Canada when they sent the, uh, the Halifax ingots, um, aluminium ingots, to, to make the roof. Um, we've also had a little bit to do with the um, sculptures, the, the architect, as he's been uh, sculpting the, the uniforms and the May West and things that are going to go on um, with the aircrew as they stand, stand in the centre of the memorial. So we've had a little bit to do with it. We've seen quite a few photos and the... Uh, the designs that they're going to use and I think it's very good it's a good size it's a good representation um, of the bomber command crew so it's very fitting um, for the guys that took part during the war. Well I guess this reawakened interest in bomber command will be good news for you with uh, visitors coming to the centre and to have a look at Just Jane as well. Definitely hope so yes um, it's all about raising awareness as you say and the more people that begin to hear bomber command if they type it into to Google into anything like that then they'll find about the different places that represent Bomber Command, whether it's us or places like the Yorkshire Air Museum, different places that actually have something to do with Bomber Command where people can actually go and, and find out that little bit more about them. Now, you're Lancaster NX611, just Jane. When she taxis, you're at the controls. What's that like? It, it's quite uh, quite a thing, really. It's something where you know the, the significance of what you're doing, the responsibility that, that's in your hands, so to speak, but you can't really let that come into your mind while you're doing your job of taxiing the aircraft uh, because you would become scared of the aircraft and you need to be in control of it all the time, master of the aircraft if you like all the time. It's only afterwards when the job's done that you start thinking about what you've done and about the significance this aircraft had 70 years ago and what it means to the public that are watching you and riding on the aircraft when you're taxiing it. it. It's quite an emotional thing to do really. As you mentioned there, unlike most restored aircraft, people can actually pay to be on board your Lancaster. Yeah, we, we take taxi ride bookings, so you can get on board the aircraft. We'll strike all four engines up and take you on a, a taxi ride um, around the grass landing strip and back up to the museum. Um, we're currently fully booked about a year in advance for those now, um, so they're a very popular thing. 
and it's, it's also an incredibly emotional thing for people that do it. We often have people getting off in tears, um, getting off and really identifying with a little bit of what the crews experienced um, tacting out to the end of the runway. Um, the sounds, the smells and the atmosphere of the aircraft really come through when you have a taxi ride. Now the return to flight, an idea which really set the tongues wagging on our forums. Tell us what the current status of the project is. We're currently waiting on um, a fourth engine that's coming, um, an airworthy engine, so we'll have four in stock. That's due um, around November, December time of this year. We've also got some undercarriage on overhaul to give us two and a half aircraft's worth of airworthy undercarriage. So we'll have a set and a spare set. Um, Once that's in place, um, we're also looking at other parts we need. We've currently got a a Martin 250 turret, um, which is being overhauled here on site. So that will take the place of our mid-upper gunner's cupola, which is just the the perspex part. So that will go into the aircraft if we we were to fly it um, and fill that position. We're then looking at lots of spare parts that we may need. We've got some propeller blades now. Um, We've got some spare tyres and spare hoods. So we're just basically doing all the groundwork, getting all the parts we'll need for the eventual push to airworthiness. So what was the spark, the inspiration to say, right, let's turn a taxing machine into a flying one? Well, it's always been Fred and Harold's um, passion that's kept uh, the aircraft here, kept the aircraft going. So getting it from static gate garden RAF Gampton to bringing it here, getting one engine going, two engines working, three engines, four engines, getting it taxiing, doing tail taxi runs. So it's a continuation of their their story with the aircraft, um, their memorial to their brother who flew during the Second World War on Bomber Command. So it's just a continuation, hopefully a completion of their story with perhaps getting the aircraft flying and getting it to air shows and and representing Bomber Command and Christopher Panton, who's their brother who flew in the war. That would be amazing. Uh, We see photographs of Just Jane posted on our forums and up close she does look in fantastic condition, but... How much work and what kind of work needs to be done to turn the aircraft into a flying example? As you say, the aircraft looks, looks very good as it sits at the moment. The, the outside the aircraft looks in very good condition. It looks structurally sound. But the leap from its position at the moment with taxiing through to airworthiness, although the aircraft's condition may not be too dissimilar, um, the actual leap, paperwork and man-hours-wise, is quite big. Um, the aircraft would need to be taken apart into its major sections, lots of it NDTs and checked and tested, and then as it's put back together, um, it all needs to be signed off to say it's airworthy. So there's quite a big paperwork exercise and quite a lot of man-hours in there, paint stripping, checking, testing, putting back together again. Um, it would take about 18 months, um, that's the current uh, idea of timescales, um, from the first rivet or bolt being undone to the last one being done up. So about 18 months, but there's no actual date to start as yet. We're just getting everything ready for when we were to. Well, you made reference there to the man-hours. Of course, it's so crucial when you're uh, beginning a project like this to get the right team, experienced team, in place to undertake the restoration. Have people been approached? Are people in place? Um, We have a list of names, shall we say, of, of the people that we take on to do the job. We currently have two full-time engineers here, one on airframe, one on engines, and there'd be a, a group of probably about five or seven um, engineers throughout the period of it who would be working on the aircraft from electricians, airframes, um, all the way through to, to engines. How much support and contact have you had or will you have with the RAF at Coningsby, who of course are the experts in operating and maintaining a, a Lancaster? I like to think we've got quite a good link with um, the Battle of Memorial Flight. We've certainly approached them and, and had a letter in return to say they're offering their support to us. We've got permissions to use a lot of their tooling and a lot of their, their paperwork behind flying the aircraft. So basically if we were to put an application in to use some of their, their tooling jigs, we would be granted it straight away. Um, we've gone to the RAS side of the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight as opposed to the uh, public relations side. So we've got a lot of backup and a lot of support from the, the hierarchy of, of the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight to help us along the way. Well, as with all aircraft restorations, money will be a key factor. Will this project be self-funding, or are there any plans to maybe approach the public for donations in the same way that the Vulcan to the Sky Trust did? Uh, it's currently in a situation where we're self-funding everything that we're doing. Um, if, of course, a member of public wanted to donate, donate some money towards the, the cause, towards getting the aircraft, 
into a much better and better condition, then I'm more than happy to take any public help that they'd like to give. Um, we're not currently looking at taking any lottery funding or any grants or anything like that. We're very keen to keep the aircraft and the museum going under our own our own steam, if you like, rather than taking any grants from um, any organisations, uh, purely for the fact that we've got, as far as we have so far, um, by ourselves effectively and, and with, with public coming to the museum. Um, we don't want to take anything and detract from what we've already done. I think the feedback from the aviation community really has been almost unanimously in favour of you getting the aircraft back into flying condition. Uh, you've got some good support out there. We are on the forums, but we keep, we keep monitoring them, seeing what people are saying, and, and it does generally seem to be um, good feedback. Um, a lot of people are, are worried that if we do get the aircraft flying, that the public won't be able to, to get on board, won't be able to see it, won't be able to taxi on it, and things like that. But the aircraft would stay at East Kirkby. People would still be able to do taxi rides. It's all about um, the owner's choice as to whether they let people on board the aircraft or not. There's no CAA regulations or legislation to say that nobody's allowed on board a flying aircraft, um, certainly while it's on the ground or taxiing. Um, so I think if, if people realise that then their ability to, to get to the aircraft won't necessarily be reduced if the aircraft flies, and I, I think they become... Um, to think that it's a, perhaps a good thing that the aircraft is in airworthy condition um, and it would be able to fly if we, if we decided to fly it. Well, finally, for our listeners who maybe would like to go and get up close and see Just Jane, uh, how can they go about that and what events have you got coming up over the next few weeks and months of the airshow season at East Kirkby? Uh, we've got our full main airshow on the 15th of September. Um, that's obviously Battle of Britain Day. But it's, um, it's our full air show, the, the only main air show we have in the year. We have about three and a half hours worth of flying. Um, it's generally a ticket-only event, um, so you could buy tickets off our website, uh, which is www.linksaviation.co.uk. Um, and also from there you'd be able to see a lot of other events that we have. We've also got an event called Props and Pistons on the 27th of August, which combines classic aircraft, uh, classic cars and also supercars we have quite a few um, supercars arrive on the day there's certainly a lot of money's worth of car that comes to the centre and that's a really good day for enthusiasts of aircraft and vehicles Andrew thank you exciting times ahead then for Just Jane and we'll have all the news on this and everything else on the airshow scene on our forums at airshows.co.uk and via Twitter where we are at UK Airshow Review you're listening to display frequency. In that chat with Andrew Panton, we spoke about the new memorial to Bomber Command. It's set to be unveiled by the Queen in London's Green Park on June the 28th, some 67 years after the end of World War II. Among those who have championed the cause and have worked hard to get the memorial built have been the late Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees and another musician, Jim Dooley. Well, Jim, I'm pleased to say, joins us now on Display Frequency. Uh, Jim, welcome. Finally, belatedly, Bomber Command is to get that fitting memorial. It's quite sad that it's taken this long and uh, and the fact that um, the guys who uh, made that ultimate sacrifice uh, for, for lots of reasons, uh, some of them political, uh, were ignored for so long, but um, uh, our, our dear friend Robin Gibb and uh, the, the previous chairman and secretary of uh, Bomber Command got together and uh, agreed that uh, it was time to, uh, to put the matter right. Robin and I uh, have been working together for the last uh, nearly five years to overcome uh, insurmountable red tape and uh, all the various obstacles that were put in our way and uh, raise the money. And, uh, and here we are now, just two weeks away from the Queen unveiling uh, the, the Bomber Command Memorial. Yes, you mentioned the role of the late Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees. What was his involvement in getting the project to this stage? Well, Robin was the president of the uh, Heritage Foundation, which is uh, an entertainment-based charity. To cut a long story short, uh, Kenneth Wollstoneholm, um, who was a broadcaster and entertainer, he was the chap that uh, is famous for, they think the it's all final, over. Yeah the World Cup final, and uh, he was actually a Mosquito pilot during the Second World War. And um, because of that, um, uh, Tony Iveson, who was the chairman of Bomber Command at the time, and uh, Doug Radcliffe, the secretary, were invited to uh, uh, um, a dinner in uh, his honour after he passed away. Tony Iverson gave a talk on uh, Bomber Command, 
and it was at that point that um, Robin Gibb uh, was made aware that um, there was no memorial to the 55,573 young volunteers who uh, gave their lives in Bomber Command. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he said that he would like to champion the cause. And uh, a meeting was fixed in uh, March 2008, uh, which I was invited to attend. And um, there was about 12, 12 of us around the table then, and uh, but it was agreed that uh, we would uh, engage uh, in a campaign to uh, raise the money and, and seek uh, planning permission and do everything that was necessary to uh, to secure uh, a fitting memorial to uh, those chaps who gave the ultimate sacrifice. Indeed, yeah. Uh, how much has this cost, and how were those funds raised? Well, the latest cost, uh, it started out, uh, I've been chasing a moving target here. Someone says, oh, I'm sure we can build a memorial for two and a half million. So that was the figure that we set out to raise. And uh, and, and, and here we are now uh, in uh, 2012, and we're looking at 7.5. Plus, we've got to raise uh, another 1.5 million to uh, put in place uh, a suitable endowment for the uh, RAF Benevolent Fund to look after the memorial in perpetuity. The sculptor Philip Jackson has designed the memorial. Just describe for us what it looks like. Philip Jackson is an extremely talented uh, sculptor and uh, he's well known for the um, Wembley Stadium, Bobby Moore and the Old Trafford, uh, um, George Best and, uh, and Bobby Charlton and uh, Dennis Law statues that are up there. He's also done the, the Queen Mother and the and Queen Elizabeth. But um, it was agreed that, you know, with with Robin's uh, influence, that we wanted a, a sculpture that was humanised. It wasn't necessarily uh, modern art. Um, a sculpture that, you know, people could identify with and, uh, and interact with. And so a, uh, a typical crew, a seven-man crew, um, was typical for the uh, heavy bombers of... Uh, Bomber Command in those days, the Lancaster Bomber, the, um, the uh, Halifax Bomber, the Stirlings, uh, the Hamdens. The sculpture is of a typical uh, seven-man crew, complete with all their accoutrements. Well, the achievements of the Fighter Boys of 1940 are well known, of course, but in recent years, it seems, the achievements of Bomber Command have been almost played down or, or maybe pushed to one side. Why do you think that's been the case? Well, I, th- I think that um, for, for these things are never one reason, are they? I, I think that uh, you know what Britain achieved in the uh, in the Battle of Britain with uh, with solo um, uh, fighters in, in Spitfires and Hurricanes uh, uh, at the time. Um, you know, there were always uh, solo combats, and of course, uh, we were defending. This was a defensive action uh, to to uh, to halt the Luftwaffe from. Uh, bombing our air bases and uh, and preparing the way for an invasion um, so and that was in 1940 so that uh, will always uh, be a more glamorous uh, um, situation whereas uh, bomber command to, you know right to 1945 and and their mission was to uh, to attack the enemy's capacity to wage war on us uh, in the best way possible and uh, as everyone knows uh, in those days uh, uh, bombing was not a very uh, accurate uh, procedure and uh, the only way to be certain of, of uh, scoring a success was to engage in area bombing. And of course, uh, with the advent of the atom bomb uh, post-war, it, it all became, you know, bombing all became very uncool. Uh, and uh, it's known, of course, that Winston Churchill in his, in his address uh, where he thanked every branch of the service um, he missed out uh, Bomber Command. Now, in my view, one of the reasons he did that was because of the Marshall Plan. We were seeking money from the Americans um, to uh, you know, assist us in uh, rebuilding uh, our cities that had been bombed. Um, but, of course, as we know, the Americans refused to uh, give us money to rebuild. We had to borrow it. And uh, we only, uh, I think, Gordon Brown, uh, towards the end of... Uh, his period as Chancellor paid back the last uh, uh, last instalment to America many, many, many years later. So I think there was a lot of political reasons uh, why uh, Bomber Command were were never looked upon as uh, glamorous. But uh, I mean, when you look at the Dam Busters, uh, you know, with Guy Gibson and the uh, the bombing of the Tirpitz, 
um, you know, these were very, very successful uh, missions, and uh, uh, and uh, of course, Guy Gibson was a he was a glamorous figure. So then, June the twenty eighth, the Queen will unveil the memorial. On that day, Jim, how will you feel personally? Oh, I mean, it's uh, you know, Robin and I always always you know felt that uh, to achieve. Uh, the erection of this memorial and over and grapple with all the the tremendous bureaucracy etc that we had to deal with over over the nearly five year period it, it's just uh, fantastic to uh, be able to pay tribute to uh, a generation of, uh, of young volunteers that uh, earned for us the, the freedom that uh, Europe has enjoyed for its longest ever period so I mean in very simple terms it was more important to us than and you know, as both as uh, musicians in in family groups, uh, more important to us than having a number one album. Jim, I'm sure it'll be a very uh, emotional day, but one you've worked very hard towards, and we wish you uh, every success on the 28th of June. Thank you very much indeed. But Robin will be very much in our minds too. Well, here we are in June, about to get into the very meat of the air show season. Yeovilton, Waddington, Farnborough, Flying Legends and of course Fairford and the Royal International Air Tattoo is looming large on our horizons. Once again I'll be part of the Riyadh commentary team along with Spiv Gare and Ben Donnell. Ben's the editor of Classic Aircraft magazine and is always tremendous value for a good chinwag, especially on a rainy day. Perfect weather then for a drink and for flapping the old gums about all things aviation. Ben was sat here on maybe the worst day of the year weather-wise, but uh, the air show season's still in our thoughts. You've had a very busy season already so far, haven't you? Yes, I have, Dan, yes. I've only managed to get to one show as a spectator. That was La Ferté LA, but I've commentated at uh, Duxford for their Jubilee air show in May, and rather oddly at two shows in Norway so far this year as well. Uh, I was initially asked to commentate at the Tiger Meat air show at Erland, and as a result of that, I also commentated at the Berndt Balken air show, named after a Norwegian-born aviation pioneer at Hjævik. And a week on from when we're talking now, I'm off to the Arctic Circle to Ondøya, the Norwegian P3 base, for their show. So a bit of an odd addition to my season's calendar, but extremely pleasant, very enjoyable. What's it like to be an English commentator, and why is there an English commentator at a show in Norway? Well, it's a bit of a long story. As I say, it started with the Tiger Meet and the idea that having an English-language commentator slash announcer, because, of course, the enthusiast audience there don't need telling what an F-16 or a Gripen is, um, because of the number of non-Norwegian speakers who would be present. Then, as a result of having got to know the members of the Norwegian Vampire team from them appearing at Duxford last September, their team leader, Kenneth Orkvisler, who is a display director of several shows in Norway, invited me to commentate at this show at Shavik, which is the home of the Royal Norwegian Air Force Technical School. And this was a bit of a strange request. I didn't think they'd have very many... Uh, English speakers or non-Norwegian speakers there and indeed I shouldn't think there were that many apart from the crews of the Boltby Spitfire and the plain sailing Catalina who wouldn't exactly need to be listening to a commentary but it turned out that they actually wanted a commentator, a main commentator for the display because of course virtually all the audience will be able to understand English as well as their mother tongue and then while I was there I met the organisers of the Ondoya show who asked me to do the same thing there as far as differences with commentating at British events is concerned, obviously these are venues at which air shows aren't held very regularly, so therefore the actual commentary facilities and equipment have differed somewhat from what I might be used to at Duxford or Riyadh, for example. Um, at Erland for the Tiger Meet, we were about 40 feet in the air, we being myself and two Norwegian commentators, one of whom is the stadium announcer for... Rosenborg. For Rosenborg, yes. Um, and this was a lot of fun, but we were about 40 feet in the air atop a hydraulic sizzle lift with no weather protection at all and the temperatures not that much below 3 degrees at one point, according to my fellow commentator's iPhone thermometer during the morning. And um, that was a little bit difficult. Um, also, you might not always have quite the equipment you need in terms of a link to the tower to hear what's going on air traffic-wise. 
uh, or indeed headphones in which you're able to listen to yourself. We've seen as well this year in Scandinavia the return of the mighty Vigan. Yes, I think it's a fantastic story that in Sweden, an example of a type that's not long been retired from service is now flying on their civil register. And, well, if you want to see it in Britain, it's doing a lot of shows in Sweden and around Scandinavia over the rest of the summer. But if you want to see it in Britain, I think the place to go is the Jersey International Air Display in September, where their links with the Swedish Air Force historic flight is the first British Isles display ever to have any of their aircraft when the J-29 came over in 2006. Um, have ensured that it will be the first place in Britain, probably, to see the Viggen. Well, Ben, you mentioned there the Viggen at Jersey. Now, Jersey, a relatively small show, let's say, but year in, year out, the participation they attract is nothing short of remarkable. Well, it's another demonstration of how the individual organiser still has a huge influence over the content of a display. Of course, a certain amount of any display's content in terms of the military participation is going to be in the gift of those tasked with allocating said participation. So that is partly out of an organiser's hands. However, Mike Higgins, who's now been running the Jersey show for 15 years this year, he decides with the budget that he has to book a mixture of some familiar civilian items, not on the grounds he think that he thinks they come together to form some magic family-pleasing formula, but because he thinks that acts like the Wing Walkers and the Aero Stars are excellent items in their own right, which they are. The rest of his budget he decides to be different with. And, yes, in 2006... He got in touch with the Swedish Air Force historic flight and he managed to get the Tunan and one of their vampires. And it was the first time they'd been to any show in the British Isles. They'd hardly ventured much outside Sweden and the rest of Scandinavia before. You should see the list of things that haven't turned up at the show over the years that he's nearly got. That's almost even more remarkable, but that's just his ambition. He gets in aircraft and items that he as an enthusiast wants to see well here we are now in what uh, mid-june how's the show season shaping up do you think in the uk this season extremely well i mean the two big military shows at waddington and riat look exceptional best lineups either have had i think for many many years and some really superb items coming from overseas military air arms that we haven't seen before in the uk of course fair for the show we have very close to our own hearts but uh, this year a real kind of back to basic show it seems and one which uh, has already uh, i think got people's tongues wagging yes i mean how could it not with items like the u.s marine corps osprey in the flying polish mig-29 the alfazan from the uae and the black eagles following on from their debut display at Waddington. Um, what else springs to mind? There is a lot. I'm really looking forward to seeing the fly past of RAF transport and tanker aircraft from Hercules and VC-10 and TriStar through to the C-17A400M and the Voyager. That will be really exceptional, especially in the 50th anniversary year of the maiden flight of the VC-10. And for people who maybe don't see behind the scenes like we do, just tell people how you, I and Spiv spend the days before the show Well, we start our work on the Wednesday our work obviously meaning at the show because our work on it begins several days earlier probably several weeks yeah. earlier if, we, uh, if we're doing it properly with preparing our commentary notes When we get there we're based in the flight centre which is the facility uh, to which all arriving crews, whether they be for flying or static displays come to clear customs, file their outbound flight plan, see the flying display director and the flying control committee if they're appearing in the display, and so forth. And once they've finished with the FCC, the display pilots are brought along to us and we get details of their routine, pilot names, unit names, pronunciations of their names and the base names. Yeah, what was the name important. of the one in uh, New Zealand again? You pronounce it better than I do. For Winnipeg. Something like that. <laughs> um, and it's a very, very pleasant occasion, and we get to uh, chat to the people on the FCC during times and share interesting stories with them. And it's almost as enjoyable as the show weekend itself is in terms of satisfaction at work. Do you enjoy a show as much when you're commentating as you do when you're just there as a spectator? Or do you enjoy it in a different way? It's two different forms of enjoyment. I very much enjoy having the job to do of commentator, no matter where that might be. But I still derive a great amount of enjoyment from watching a show, photographing it and reporting on it. Last year, of course, on the Saturday we had bad weather in it... Uh rather threw our plans out of the window. Uh, but that was a day when I think we had to react and it was, uh, it was enjoyable in a different way for us, wasn't it? 
Yes, it was certainly a different challenge. I hadn't previously been involved with commentating on an air show that had been so disrupted by the weather before. Um, And it is a situation where you do have to think on your feet and where also you're having to bring in a lot of information on what's going on. Uh, Very sad to hear of the passing of John Blake a few weeks ago when he was the very first commentator at an air tattoo back in 1971. He was. I mean, he commentated at many of the major UK venues. I mean, probably best remembered for Biggin Hill and Farnborough. Uh, The aviation journalist Mike Jerram recounted to me a very good story about John Blake, one of the well-known ones, the other week. Um, I think it was the 1965 Biggin Hill airfare, and the late Neil Williams was displaying a stomp I think he might have been uh, pulling out of a spin and um, the aircraft disappeared from view and Blake's words were, um, well, he's taking it down behind the hangars and then there was a crump and Blake said, and by Jove, he's left it there. (laughs) But the Art and Air Show commentary, people like John Blake, um, the voices who are the soundtrack to shows over so many decades, I think John Blake was active over four decades of air shows, um, what do you think makes a really good airshow commentary? It's very hard to say because I think it's good to have a mix of styles. I mean, two people that I really grew up listening to at airshows had two of the most contrasting commentary styles you could ever think of. Roger Hoefling, particularly at Milton Hall, and Jerry Mead, who used to commentate at the Duxford shows. Of course, Roger was and is extremely authoritative, extremely measured very factual but never talking too much never smothering the flying jerry on the other hand was an extremely entertaining commentator with a very rich laugh i well remember the 1996 classic jet and fighter display at duxford as being probably jerry's finest hour that was a a show organized by the ofmc and it was featuring the heathrow 50th anniversary fly past which the idea was that the jets would take off from stansted just come over Duxford en route to Heathrow but one of them in the middle of the formation went off course for some reason during it and uh, really threatened to throw the whole thing out and all you could hear over the uh, tannoy that day at Duxford was (laughs) as they gradually tried to get themselves back into line but uh, those two were great uh, great favourites of mine what makes a good commentary Um, you've got to be up on your current facts colour schemes, units, operators, recent operations and so forth. A good voice for broadcasting always helps. And obviously an enthusiasm and confidence in the role. I think for a commentator, be it football, be it air shows, whatever, the number one thing for me personally, and I've said it before about football commentary, is that you have to sound like you know it's the best job in the world. You have to sound like you're enjoying what you're doing. Yes, without going over the top on that, because that, to me, can grate, particularly if one keeps on saying, this is fantastic. Another show you're very uh, keen on, I know, is uh, La Ferte Allais. You were there this year. Just tell us what that show was like in uh, 2012. It was lovely. The weather was absolutely glorious all weekend. They had a really big crowd. The atmosphere was, as ever, something very, very special. You go there as much as for the atmosphere as for the flying. The airfield has changed in character even just since last year's show. They've put up a new museum hangar for the Musée Volant Salis, the Salis Flying Museum, with the aircraft of the Salis family's casque de cuir, or leather helmets collection, and the Amical Jean-Baptiste Salis. And they've also now started building two more hangars in the central area. So, So there is an increased number of buildings on the airfield, but it's losing none of its character as a result. As for the flying, well, there were items there that you won't see anywhere else. Finally, the Memorial Flight Association managed to get its SPAD-13 into the air. Original 1917 vintage First World War fighter, of course. It apparently hasn't performed particularly well in recent years when they've test-flown it, but Melvin Hiscock, who was giving some English comments during Bernard Chabert's commentary, said that Baptiste Salis, who was flying it, said it had never performed so well before, and he gave a superb display in it. They also had their SOP with one and a half strutter newly restored in the air for the first time, though sadly because I had to dash off for Duxford on the Sunday I missed it because it was on right at the end after the Patouille de France. There was a formation of six Focke-Wulf Stieglitzers. They had Tom Schrade's wonderful Sikorsky S38 amphibian, which I'm delighted to see is coming to Flying Legends. That was there. A host of other brilliant items. It's a lovely show. You have to go at some point. I would love to. Ben, thank you, and uh, I'll see you in what? 
four weeks' time, five weeks' time at Fairford? I think it's less than that, isn't it? Don't, don't. I've, <laughs> <laughs> I've got notes to write. <laughs> It's competition time now on Display Frequency, and today, thanks to our good friends at Plains TV, we have a terrific prize to give away to one lucky Display Frequency listener. We have a copy of last season's retrospective, British Air Show's 2011 up for grabs, on either DVD or Blu-ray, which features the best of the action from Abingdon, Kemble, Flying Legends and Riat, among many more. To find out more about Plains TV's products, go to their website at plainstv.com. But we're looking for one lucky winner who can correctly answer the following question. Football commentator Kenneth Wollstoneholm flew one of the following three aircraft types for the Royal Air Force's Pathfinders. Just tell us which one via the entry form at airshows.co.uk forward slash podcast. Here we go. Number one, de Havilland Mosquito. Number two, Blackburn Buccaneer. And number three, Handley Page Halifax. Get your entries into us by midnight on Saturday, July the 14th, 2012. The best of luck to you. You're listening to UK Airshow Reviews Podcast. This is Display Frequency. Well, you've got a tough choice to make later this month. The weekend of June the 30th and July the 1st features not one, but two potentially classic airshows. Flying Legends at Duxford has the debut of the Fighter Collection's new P-47 Snafu. There's a Sikorsky S-38 and a return of the Red Bull P-38. But if you like your airshow action to be more jet-powered, then it's Waddington all the way, with a lineup which features some real star performers and rare gems from overseas. Well, I'm joined on the line now by Paul Sal, the director of the Waddington International Air Show. Paul, a warm welcome to you. Uh, looking at the list of aircraft, the Saudi Hawks, the Korean Black Eagles a 757 from New Zealand, Swiss F-18, perhaps the most international lineup for many years. It is, yeah, we're delighted. As you say, um, probably the most international display we've ever had, and, and, and really the only civilian outfit that's going to be flying at the air show is the, is the Blades, but uh, we're really looking forward to it. It should be really fantastic. I think we've been very fortunate this year. We've benefited from a number of angles, really. I mean, after each year, after each air show, we, we get down and we speak to the various uh, defence attaches and air attaches to try and solicit their support for the forthcoming year. But I think what we've really benefited from is the overall profile of Waddington. It's um, people seeing us as being um, a true sort of aviation spectacle uh, as opposed to anything else. And uh, testament to that statement is probably the lineup that we've just talked about. How do you strike the balance between rare items the enthusiast wants to see and items with, let's say, more broad family appeal? Well, uh, well I think it's, it's probably worth mentioning that, that the air show is all about sort of showcasing the Royal Air Force and its partner organisations, and obviously from an international standpoint, that's very important. So we, we try and engage um, with as many of the international sort of um, participants as best we can, as early as we can, uh, and then make sure that we sort of intersperse those with um, the Royal Air Force assets that we've got, who, of course over recent years have been fairly sparse because of the operational commitment but, but the balance to be struck between the international and the Royal Air Force is, is fundamental to, to what Waddington's law is all about in terms of showcasing the Royal Air Force. Now we hear so much about the so-called Vulcan effect. Uh, what impact, if any, do you think the Vulcan's cancellation this year might have on your show? Well, clearly we're hugely disappointed with that, and, and I've been speaking to Michael Trotter the other day, and uh, I know they're working very hard to get it back airborne. Um, uh, and, and I think, yeah, there will be, yes, there will be an impact, but we've already talked about the fact that we've got a, a truly international, quite a, an awe-inspiring lineup with, with some of our displays, so I hope that's going to mitigate uh, the Vulcan factor, as you put it. Now, last year on our forums, we read reports of uh, problems with the roads and traffic. How have they been addressed for 2012? Yeah, um, we've. Um, I think one of the one of the great advantages of Waddington is that we were able to sell a lot of our tickets in advance, and we're sort of leveraging that this year by uh, having um, advanced ticket lanes, which we haven't done in the past. Um, and so that will speed up entry onto the station and hopefully take off some of the um, the traffic off the, off the off the B roads, A roads that support Waddington, which is obviously a bit of a critical path because. Um, being a rural sort of area, um, the main roads aren't that great. Um, but, but we seem to cope reasonably well, and the local community are very much on side with what we're trying to do. And how have the advanced ticket sales been so far? Very good, very good indeed. And, uh, you know, on a number of uh, radio interviews and 
advertising the sort of mediums that, that I've done in the recent past, we've made the point that sales are doing very, very well. And indeed, we may be at the point where we can't or should not be selling tickets on the day. So if anybody's still under an iron, then I would strongly recommend get out to the various outlets we've got or even online and, and get our tickets. So at this point, we're speaking on, what, the 18th of June. We are heading towards potentially a sellout. Very possible. Very, yeah, highly possible. That's not unlike last year, actually, when we had to sort of close the, the doors about halfway through the day as well. Well, Paul, thank you. Uh, the best of luck with this year's show. I guess all you need now, really, is the weather to play ball and for the sun to shine. Well, Dan, thank you very much. I mean, you could put on a fantastic show, but uh, it's all very much dependent on the weather, and fingers across for that side of it, certainly. Before Waddington comes the air show at Yeovilton this coming weekend on Saturday, June the 23rd. The air day last year was one of our forum's favourites, and rightly so. Once again, the participation list looks strong, so let's preview the display by speaking to Lieutenant Commander Phil Thornton at Yeovilton. Hello, and welcome to Display Frequency. Hello, nice to talk to you. Well, first, just pick out for us one or two of the standout items you think we can look forward to at Yeovilton this weekend. Well, if we um, cover the morning first, um, we've got a good line-up uh, from our 11 o'clock flying display start with a Hawker Hunter from uh, Newcastle displaying first off. Uh, and then we've got the Royal Air Force so- Solo Hawk display, followed by the Army Air Corps backflipping Lynx uh, display, which is always very popular and useful to take photographs of. And the crowd favourite is uh, seeing out the uh, AM period of the uh, display with the red arrows. Straight after the lunchtime period, demonstrating our Royal Naval Aircraft, uh, we're going to have something quite unique in the fact that our historic swordfish aircraft is going to be flying in formation with our modern Lynx helicopters uh, before the swordfish does its own display and then the Lynx does a roll demonstration with its explosives, etc. The P-51, Sea uh, Fury and Sky Raider will be doing a formation fly past before they do their individual displays. And similarly, we'll have Venom, Vi- Vampire and Meteor later on in the afternoon. And we're really looking forward to the Saudi Hawks displaying here. It'll be their first display in country before they go off to the other air shows. Yes, the Saudi Hawks. How much work goes into getting a team like that to display at a British air show? Um, A lot of blood, sweat and tears. Um, uh, My email traffic uh, between here and Saudi Arabia, I I ought to have a... uh, a um, fibre optic of my own for that because so many emails have been passed that way uh, and back to me to try and sort out the the uh, uh, administration and the display clearances etc that have to be done there's a huge administrative burden that goes on with this not only but for the uh, display organisers but for the display team as well because they have to uh, ensure that their command are happy with what has to be uh, done and what's been organised and then at this end we have to make sure that it complies with our regulations and that we can give the team everything they need so there's a huge amount of uh, background work that goes on before you could get a display team here and furthermore of course uh, in this particular case it uh, it has to be translated not only into a different language but a completely different uh, alphabet as well I know the show always ends with the commando assault. It's always really popular with the members on our forums. Uh, for people who've not seen it, though, just tell us what's involved. Well, we have this imaginary situation that Yeovilton Air Station has been taken over by the baddies, and we need to take it back. And the Royal Navy uh, helicopters will be accompanied by an Army Air Corps uh, Apache helicopter um, and uh, the Sea Kings and links of the Royal Navy will come in and take the airfield back, uh, assisted by the Apache. Clearly, the uh, Apache is there to spot uh, the enemy and keep uh, their heads down with suppressive fire, and there'll be plenty of ground-based explosives to simulate that. And likewise, when the uh, Sea King helicopters bring the troops in, uh, they will be putting them on the ground either by landing on by roping them or abseiling them down to the ground. Quite spectacular uh, Royal Marines abseiling out of the aircraft at a couple of hundred feet. We'll then bring in the equipment, Land Rovers and other equipment for the, uh, for the Royal Marines to drive around the airfield and attack the enemy in. And then uh, at the end we will bring in 
big guns, etc., to make sure that the airfield is secured and we are able to uh, keep the enemy at bay. Having taken the airfield back, we then line up all our participants, uh, including the Hawk jets, which have been simulating uh, uh, ground attack aircraft. And they, once the Hawk jets fly by over the top of the hovering helicopters, that's when we set our wall of fire off. As with last year, the French participation, which appeared on the early lists, I know got our uh, forum into almost a, a frenzy, the NH-90 flying and the pair of Rafales. Uh, what's the latest situation? Are they coming? Are they flying? What's the latest news? The Rafale, we're having one Rafale come to the air show and the NH-90, but unfortunately their uh, uh, promised support of being able to participate in the flying display is not going to happen, so they're going to be in the static park now. Um, we're not too sure why they're unable to display, um, uh, but it's a great disappointment to us um, as uh, they're always welcome to be in the air in a flying display, clearly. Um, but uh, at least they'll be in now in the static part where people will be able, be able to get up close and talk to the crews as well. As a final point for our listeners who may be thinking of coming to the air show this coming weekend, what advice would you give them with regards to when to arrive and traffic? Get in early. That's the uh, that's the advice. Our car parks open at 7:30, and the gates open at 9 o'clock, and the flying starts uh, only two hours later at 11. So um, once you're through the gate, there's lots and lots to see. We've got uh, more tarmac covered in static aircraft than we have in recent years. So there's plenty to see in the two hours between the gates opening and the flying display starting at 1100. So please get here early, get in through the gates early and see what's on the ground before you see the, the air display that we've organised for you. Lieutenant Commander Phil Thornton there looking ahead to the Yeovilton Air Day. If you're going, enjoy and please do feel free to post your photographs and your thoughts on the show on our forums, which are at airshows.co.uk. This year's show at Cosford was, without question, the most eagerly anticipated there for many years, with the organisers openly taking suggestions from UCAR forum members, as well as freely sharing information in the run-up to the show. It's the kind of openness and engagement we like, and to find out more, we sent Peter Reock to make his display frequency debut, speaking to two people from the Cosford team, Chas McHugh, and first, display director Bill Hartree, who revealed the changes made behind the scenes this year. Basically, the organizing team of three people who had done this for a large number of years, more than 10 years, uh, retired last year. Uh, myself, as the flying display director, is probably the only person who's done this for a little while, and this is my ninth uh, air show. So from the flying display point of view, what you see in the sky, things haven't changed very much. Where the changes have occurred has been in the setting up of the ground uh, side of it and all of that. Having said that, uh, we've still got the Cosford personnel here, many of whom were here last year, so people who come to the air show won't see much change, if any at all. In the run-up to the show, uh, there's been a lot of excitement on our forums um, as, as with the addition of the Jaguar GR3 taxi run, which was suggested by the members of the forum. Uh, how much work goes into securing a unique item like this for the show? Well, the Jaguar taxi um, exercise is done on a day-to-day -day basis on normal operations for number 238 squadron. So the facility was there. Uh, the ideas came from forum members, and as their customer, as they're our customers, we will endeavour to provide where and when we can. And in this case, it was something that we could put together. And do you think that could become a regular performer at Cosford? A lot will depend on how successful it is this year, and if there's any debrief points that may stop that in the future, we'll wait and see. And another big coup for the show has been the appearance of a VC-10. Cosford is currently the only show, aside from the Royal International S2, to, uh, to have the VC-10 in the flying display in its last year of RAF service. Uh, presumably a very difficult task for you and the team with the high tempo of operations. So how long a process have we working on that item for? We asked for it months ago and it looked very unlikely that we were going to be able to get it because of their tasking requirements. However, this particular aircraft has got a very busy weekend that weekend that starts off with the Queen's Birthday Flypass in, in London and then it's going to RAF events at both Coningsby and Waddington. So the aircraft is on exercise already that weekend and effectively what we've done is tapped into its recovery into Bryce Norton so that it isn't going far out of its way and will provide us with seven minutes of what could be quite an exclusive 
event this year. So as we now know, Vulcan XH-508 unfortunately couldn't have made it to the show with the engine trouble. But however, before this, uh, Cosford have already made the decision not to include the Vulcan in its flying display. Um, can I ask what your thought process behind this was and uh, if the cost of the Vulcan impacted your decision? Uh, basically, yes. Uh, uh, we looked at uh, how much we were going to be charged for that uh, in relation to the time that it was going to display for, and it became not cost-effective. So I made the decision that uh, on this occasion we would not uh, hire the Vulcan. Unfortunately, it then had its engine problems, so it couldn't have come anyway. For the future, assuming it flies next year, we would need to find, or they would need to find, sponsorship because as a single item in a display, to my way of thinking, it is simply too expensive. And has there been any major impact on ticket sales? Obviously, there's no uh, Vulcan to attract masses of public this year. Do you think that's made an impact? No, I don't, uh, because the program that we have uh, designed for this year's flying display um, is very comprehensive. It's got lots of other things for, for the people to see. And my aim as flying display director is to provide uh, entertainment for a variety of different people. We try and provide something for families who come, we try and provide something for the professionals, and we try and provide something for the spotters. So we have a very wide variety of aircraft coming this year. It is a balancing act, but uh, I do tend more towards the smaller display teams, the colourful ones, the ones that are going to put something slightly different in the air in front of the public. Um, for example, this year we've got the Aerostars, we've got the SWIP team, we've got the Trig team with two pit specials, uh, all things that are slightly different and slightly less hardcore. So yes, we do emphasize, we do veer towards that. You had secured a, a Bell 212 from the Army Air Corps, which has been a very rare and welcome appearance for the static part. But then sadly, um, about a month ago, it announced it cancelled. However, a week later, uh, Waddington Air Show announced on their website that a Bell 212 from the Army Air Corps was going to be static at their show. Do things like this dishearten the organizers, or is it simply part of the industry? This year in the United Kingdom across the board, it's a very dynamic year with events happening pretty much every every weekend b between a combination of the Jubilee year and the Olympic um, Games, um, which means then that the, the call on the military to support the civil powers is probably greater this year than it ever has been in, in, within living memory just about. Um, for us, the Bell 212 that we were going to have was going to come from Watersham. The one that um, Waddington have booked is going to come from Middle Wallop. It's two different organizations who have got different responsibilities and different tasking. And, and the priority will always remain operational tasking. And in this case, for that reason and that reason alone, we lost ours. But we certainly don't begrudge Waddington the fact that they've got one, if indeed it does get there in the end. Would you say the runway length at Cosford poses a problem for attracting, for example, foreign military participants, or are most crews happy with operating from Shawbury? The runway length is certainly a factor, uh, because it's only 3,800 feet long, but it hasn't in the past prevented us from getting foreign military participation. Not so long ago, we had a Saab from uh, Austria and a PC-7 from the Netherlands. This year, we've got the uh, helicopters from Belgium, and we've got a French Transvaal C-160 coming as well. Clearly, we can't accommodate the uh, big teams like the Patrouille de France or the uh, Freddy Tricolori, but if they were available for us, we would operate them out of Shawbury, have done in the past, and it hasn't caused us a problem. Um, in fact, two years ago, we had the Dutch F-16. We operated him out of uh, um, Bryce Norton. So, you know, we, we make it work whichever way we can. So the runway isn't a problem. This year, we've seen... Uh Posting on our UK Air Show Review forums, keeping our members well informed and taking on board a lot of our thoughts and suggestions. Do you think this kind of enthusiast organizer relationship is helpful? We have to be very careful in that uh, you are our customers and we, we are very interested in what you've got to say and it does indeed um, sow the seeds for ideas that we can develop on. The, the only issue that I have is that we have to be very careful about what we commit to the forums because we don't want to give you lots of promises that we, that we then can't deliver. So everything is on a timeline, and effectively, we could only go hard copy on what airplane is going to be here pretty much on the day of the event because of technical issues, weather issues, and all sorts of other things that affect us this side of the day itself. Uh, but yes, I think that um, um, getting the feedback from customers via a forum has been very productive and without a doubt has changed the shape of CrossFit this year. 
So there you go. From the horse's mouth, our forum does make a difference. So let's hear your feedback on Cosford or any of the shows at home or abroad this summer. And let us know, too, what you make of Display Frequency, because that's all we have time for in today's show. Our thanks to all who took part and to you for downloading and for taking the time to listen. The next podcast comes along in a few weeks, where I'll be looking at Farnborough, Fairford, and maybe the most underrated display team on the UK circuit. But more of that in the next show. From me, Dan O'Hagan, it's goodbye. Right.